Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Gators Breakdown. The Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown, episode 152, is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter, at GatorDave underscore FCC. Joining me tonight, co-host Will Miles, founder of ReadingReaction.com. You can find him on Twitter, at WillMilesSEC, and he's back. Bill Sykes is on Gators Breakdown. You can find him on Twitter at Real B Sykes. Gentlemen, I think uh, the listeners out there are, are definitely excited to have, to have Bill back on. Well, everybody thinks I di- I'm diving off a cliff. So, <laughs> so we bring Bill in for some balance here and make sure that I'm uh, make sure I'm not being too negative there, Dave. Hey, you know what? First of all, it is good to be back, and it's good to be back on with both of you guys and. Uh, I'm not here to be positive or negative. I'm here to be truthful and as accurate as I can be as a service to the fans. So that that's all I'm here to do. You know, if I had uh, if I had rights to music, you know, it would be the obligatory, you know, Eminem. Guess who's back? Here, that, that, <laughs> that that would have been the theme of the the episode. That 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 theme song would have been playing. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of Bill is 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 rap music. Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying I'm the Vanilla Ice of the Gator Nation? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, FSU would hire you for a spring concert. Yeah, I went to FSU one time. It didn't work out too well. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed back in town yet or not. I don't know what the statute of limitations is. <laughs> Bill, what's been up, man? A couple, I guess about a month and a half, a couple months or so since you've been on the uh, show. Uh, family time, summertime, kids are out of school. Uh, what's been going on? Yeah, a lot of the beach and the lake and, you know, I kind of suspend fishing activities when, it, you know, it gets so hot. But uh, just really after so many years away from Florida, it's been good to just spend time with them and uh, kind of just soak up the Florida lifestyle, man. I had, I, had, uh, I think, was it three grills and a smoker going on back in the in the backyard the other day? My neighbors came running into the backyard and thought things were on fire back there. But, you know, it just, you know, that's what we do, man. This uh, is apparently how you meet people in Jacksonville. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, uh, I hey, you know what, man? I, it's really good to be back home. It really is, and, and I'm loving it. And uh in the new house here, I'm not fully un- unpacked. Um we will pretend there's not boxes waiting to be unpacked next to my desk here in the in the new stat cave. But uh, you know, it's coming right along, man. Hey, and with that, uh an absence on Twitter until recently. 
Yeah, I kind of just came back just to kind of hype up the show and uh, ruffle a few feathers because that's what I do. And, uh, <laughs> you know, hey, man, I- I'm always up to uh, call it like I see it. And because, like I said, I, I feel like that's a service to the fans, whether they like what I have to say or not. I don't, I don't care if um, if we spoon at night, you know, with the fans or whatever. I, I, don't, I don't want them to remember me as Miss Congeniality. I just want them to remember me as the guy who was honest with them one way or another. And uh, I might be right and I might be wrong, but I want to maintain my integrity there. Little did I know the word spoon would come out in this episode. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you never know where things will go on the, on the Gators Breakdown, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. There you'll find all the Gators Breakdown episodes, past, present, and future as well as articles from the News for Jack sports team. That's news4jacks.com slash Gators Breakdown. Also, you can listen on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. That's the live version going on right now. Uh, using those services, please rate, share, review the show, let Gator Nation know what they're getting with Gators Breakdown. And out there on social media, follow Gators Breakdown on Twitter and Facebook at Gators Breakdown. So, Bill, of course, uh, we're having you on mostly because uh, Recruiting World's been on you know, lit on fire uh, in Gator Nation the last couple, uh, you know, last couple of few weeks, uh, maybe a month or so uh, with, you know, targets headed elsewhere and, you know, Florida's brought in a couple of recruits uh, uh, as well. But uh, I guess explain to everybody why you felt the need to uh, get your voice heard and, and about what's going on in the world of recruiting for the Gators right now. All right. Well, first a disclaimer. Um, I know it's a charged atmosphere and I probably wasn't helping that too much on Twitter today, but um I'm just trying to bring some clarity tonight. Um, there's been a lot of questions, a lot of points of debate that are hard to quantify. They're hard to point to easy reference material to say, hey, that's true or that's not true. And I've heard a lot of these things going on in the debates lately uh, asking, hey, is Mullen doing a good job? Uh, does he have to win uh, before he will recruit well? Um, can he possibly see a third year bump class? Um, and so I keep hearing these things. And, and like I said, there wasn't a, a really easy uh, point of information to point to. So I went and I did my little research project and I, I pulled information on every single Power Five coaching hire, Power Five conferences, uh, to be your ACC, SEC, Big Ten, Big 12, and uh, I say Pac-12. Um, so everybody they've hired since 2005. And the reason I started there, actually, uh, S. Murphy uh, on the 24-7 boards came to me. We were going to kind of do a uh, project together, and he kind of went one route with it, and I went another. Um, but he suggested that date, and I thought it was a great one to start with because, number one, uh, that's when Urban Meyer came in. That's when Florida's last really successful coach was was in place. But also, I didn't want to go too far back. I could have gone to 2002 pretty easily. Uh, but for there's been a lot of changes in the, in the dynamics of the recruiting world as of late. Things have changed in the way the, the classes are laid out. Um, or excuse me, at the rankings, how they have fallen. Um, and so I thought it was a, a good place to, to go from. I pulled the win-loss record of every one of those 132 hires prior to the revival. So the year before they got there, what were they taking over? An eight-win team, a four-win team like Dan Mullins having to deal with, or 10-win team, whatever. Then I pulled their win-loss records for the first three seasons. They had that new program under their control. I pulled, uh, I believe, about eight different recruit, recruiting metrics for those first three classes, the transition class, uh, the bump class, and you're going to hear that term a lot tonight, bump class, bump year. That means the second uh, recruiting class. It's the first full year they have to recruit. 
uh, and it starts before the, the new coach takes the field. So he doesn't deal with a lot of negative recruiting based on his performance. Um, it, you know, and I pulled the number of blue chips, the blue chips percentages, the fours and five stars, how many five stars, um, the average player rating, conference rating. We've got a good little profile here. And I believe that it's going to give us some good insight as to how fast coaches uh, win, how fast coaches win conferences, how uh, fast coaches see those bumps in recruiting. And um, I also broke it down not only across the entire nation. I know I do have that full list, but I broke it down for each conference. And then I went into each conference and pulled the averages for the future conference winners. And as we'll talk about in here in just a few minutes, uh, for the SEC, there's been six conference coaches uh, hired in the SEC that went on to win their first SEC title since 2005. And that was great news to me because a lot of times in this debate, you hear people say, well, that's just Nick Saban. That's just Urban Meyer. But when you're taking equalized line item information from six different coaches in that period, well, that kind of dilutes any outlier impact they may have had on the positive end. And uh, we can also see some minimums there that give us a good baseline. Right. And we'll, you know, we've talked with Bill about this research for a little while. And, you know, the topics include, you know, the, the importance of the 2019 class, uh, even, you know, a quick look at the, the 18 class, uh, the whole, you know, the popular, uh, does, you know, the, the results on the field is how much is that going to help in the world of recruiting? And also this California recruiting strategy uh, that, that the Gators ha have laid out uh, to not great success so far. So, Will, you know, looking at what Bill has done on the surface, you know, what kind of caught your eye and what and what we're going to talk about here tonight? Well, you know, we we all thought that he was off just fishing, but but he, he was out to <laughs> he was out doing pretty significant research. I think it's 150 degrees, Will. What do you want me to do? <laughs> <laughs> the one time the weather's actually nicer up where I am, but. Uh, <laughs> Now, I mean, I, I think the thing that really probably stands out is just that, you know, we've touched on all of these different things and you hear all sorts of different um, either explanations or excuses, depending on which side, depending upon which side of the argument that you're on. And, and I think Bill's doing a pretty good job here of sort of at least indicating that these aren't things you can ignore, that one, you know, when one thing you can you can say, hey, there's an explanation when there's five different things you got to say, OK, um, you know, each of these things taken in aggregate um, is something to pay attention to. It's not necessarily, um, you know, it's not necessarily critical on July 15th that we're absolutely where we're going to be. But but we're at a point now where we need to start talking about where we are and what that means and, and when it, you know, when should we be concerned? And that's sort of what we've been saying all along, Dave. Hey, right. one other thing too here, just keep in mind, we're going to have some positives. I, I found a couple of really good positives I want to share with people. And there's some negatives, some things I'm concerned about and, you know, just, some things just are the way they are. You know, I'm not, I still support Dan Mullen, uh, but I don't want to come across at all that I'm telling people what's possible or impossible based on the, the data. I mean, anything within reason is possible. The Gators could win the national championship this year, next year, three years from now. I, I don't know. I'm not here to tell you what's possible, what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. I get accused of that a lot. I'm here to tell you what's probable based on history. I'm just going to tell you, Hey, there's a strong chance based on what we're seeing here that this is probably not going to work out if it continues. And because well, what I hope to do is that Mullen, or excuse me, I hope that Mullen can do is to put himself in a position where he doesn't have to break new ground, that he doesn't have to make history to achieve the kind of success that he wants and that we want. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from tonight. 
Yeah, that's kind of, you know, I had a little tirade on Twitter today. So, you know, kind of kind of defend uh, how we do things here on Gators Breakdown. You know, it's it's we've been positive. We've been negative uh, or, you know, critical at times, uh, you know, but never just for the sake of being one way or the other. You know, we really want to inform the fan base. And that's why we like to bring uh, both sides to the table. You know, and, and, and as, as far as recruiting goes uh, right now, you know, it doesn't mean it can't get better or, or, or won't get better. But the twin, the trends that we're going to bring up here tonight, and we've brought up in the past, uh, are basically just set a barometer. And if it gets better, then you know that this, what the staff did uh, to beat the odds. If they don't, well, then at least you know some reasons why uh, the struggles are out there. So you know we're ready for the season to start. We're ready to talk football as well. But recruiting is the hot button topic. We're not going to put our heads in the sand. We're not going to ignore it. Uh, we're going to bring what most people out there in Gator Nation want to talk about. And I think what Bill said earlier about, you know, we're not, our goal isn't to be positive or negative, it's to be truthful. And that's true for all three of us. And there are people who can't do that because of access, or there are people who can't do that because they, you know, they, they have blinders on. And, and in some capacity, we do too, because we love the university. But, you know, you look at the numbers, and if the numbers are telling you one thing, it, it's, it's incumbent upon us, at least, I think we feel like it's incumbent upon us to at least put those numbers out there and interpret what they mean. Now, if the interpretation is wrong, I think we're all welcome to having an intelligent debate about what those numbers mean and if there are alternative numbers going and taking a look at that but but until the alternative numbers are put in front of us you know we're going to interpret it the way uh you know the, the way it makes sense to us hey and one other thing just before we get started i don't want to fire dan mullen <laughs> <laughs> i think he's gonna do a good job at the university of florida and and uh i get a i probably got accused of that 15 times today on twitter you want to fire no i don't want to fire dan mullen i like the guy's coach I'm sorry for calling him Cousin Eddie before he got to Gainesville. I can't change the past. I'm just trying to inform the fans. <laughs> All right, here we go. Kicking it off. Um, Bill, you felt the need to the uh, explain a bump class uh, and their importance. And you said it's a term, you know, a lot of people doesn't necessarily hear a, a whole lot, but in most of the time it's really just the, the second recruiting class and really just the full term first basically you know, the first full-term recruiting class that a coach is bringing in since, you know, he's not having to play catch up with the, uh, the first transition class. Yeah. When they come in at first, everybody talks about this. It's a short time transition class. Like you signing day, even before the early signing day was the first, was it Wednesday in February? And if a coach got hired in January, he's got a month to put a recruiting class together. He would try to hold on to whatever commits he felt would help him out from the, the previous administration they already had on board and he'd have to scramble to go out and put a coaching staff together, get them on the road, find some guys that are willing to commit that he felt were good fits. Not a lot of good evaluations that go on because you, you don't get to build those relationships over the course of a year or two. And so you don't you get a lot of busts in those class because of personality, because of scheme fit, whatever. But when in in the bump class, you got that full year to to do real recruiting. And it, traditionally at, at Florida, you've seen a seven spot rise from class one to class two. And, and until until McElwain came along, um, you were generally talking about exclusively top 10 classes and in, in some cases, top fives nationally. And, and those classes, we'll talk in a few minutes about the importance of what they've done for other coaches and coaches at Florida. Um, but you've seen nationally in those 132 Coaches hires. And I believe there's 11 of those guys that haven't completed their bump class that are right. They hired this past year with Mullen. Uh, but the ones that have, the national average has seen an eight and a half spot increase in the ranking. So if you 
finished 20th, which they didn't. They actually, the average transition class was 40th uh, for these 100 and some odd coaches. The second class went up to number 31 on average. So 80% of the time, it was actually 79 and a half, I think it was, or 79.4. Almost 80% of the time you saw an increase from year one to year two. Uh, so that's a huge portion of the new coaches. And on average, they jumped eight and a half. Now, sometimes it's one or two spots. Sometimes it was 25, 30. Uh, but that's the average. That correlates well to the SEC. SEC followed suit. Uh, their second classes rose by an average of 6.2 spots. So not quite as much. But it, if you think about it, some of those were very highly ranked. Uh, so they don't have as much room right. to go before they hit the roof there. And um, they're, because their average transition class ranked 25th, much higher than the, the national average. And their bump classes averaged 18th. So we see that same thing there. And that includes the bottom feeders like Vanderbilt and Kentucky, those types. Um, so what we're looking at there, Bill, if Florida had – using 24-7, uh, the 14th ranked recruiting class. Yep, using the, having the 14th ranked – Transition class, all in all, you going by numbers, Florida should have somewhere around the eighth rank class. Yes. Now, I I really wish I and I had predicted that based solely on the history at Florida. Um, but I wish I hadn't done that at the time because I don't believe any of those other coaches took over a four win team. And that is a factor to look at. Um, but as we look at some of this information, I still would not have lowered it. I still feel like the estimate should have probably come in nine or 10 uh, because you, you see these big programs and we'll talk about that. They typically, the big programs, even after the bad seasons do pretty well. And one thing I will add is if you look at percentages there, Bill, so it's about 77%. If you look at the th overall and it's about the same thing, if you look at the sec, so you were talking about sort of the differences in, uh, in you know that the SEC schools start a little bit higher, so they have a lower change, but that change on a percentage basis is about the same thing. So again, if you apply that percentage to where Mullins finished last year, you look you end up right around ninth or tenth. Yeah, and you see that not only because they have higher quality, uh, and they do because the average player rating, the number of five stars, number of four stars, number of blue chips all go up proportionately. It's not just a numbers game, but it all is also a numbers game. Uh, in the SEC. Uh, you got about three and a half more players. I think that was consistent with national too. You, you have on average three or four more players, whereas you might sign only 20 guys in the first class. Uh, the second class, typically you're going to sign almost a full class, 23, 24. You find more guys that can sign. And while sometimes those numbers can dilute the results, like we see Ole Miss right now, they're high in the rankings because they got almost a full class ready to go, but it's a lot of three stars. And so their national rank is a little bloated at the moment. But when you look at it in the, the sense that final results, you need a full class. Well, those three or four contributors, contributors, even if they are not, you know, all SEC ball players, you need them on the team. So that's a factor that we should consider too. And Bill, when we look at this, and I'll, I'll quote some stuff from your research too. And getting back to the elite of the elite, where we want Florida to be, you know, the elite bump classes uh, is a hallmark of recent SEC coaches, um, you know, who eventually won the SEC. Uh, so while the overall average bump increase for SEC coaches has been six point two, as we mentioned, future SEC championship coaches saw in your research showed an increase of eight point two spots in the national rankings, uh, two point three spots in conference rankings. Uh, an average of 2.35 stars in the bump class, an average national ranking of 4.7, average conference ranking of 2.3, uh, 
and an average of 16.8. So basically 17 blue chips in the class. So that would be 17 five or four stars in an elite SEC bump class. Yeah, look, guys, there's going to be some stark reality in this next little segment here. Um, first, let me say this. SEC coaches, I went all the way back to Spurrier, okay, and to, to 1990. Now, Spurrier, of course, won his um, first SEC right before the institution of the title game, if I'm not mistaken. But in the history of the title game, which it was like 91, no SEC well, – actually, there's two out of all those SEC coaches, which is like – Maybe 28 years here, 27 years, only two of them won their first SEC championship after their third year at the school. Life comes at you fast in the SEC. Only two won it after in the long, when they said, hey, I'm going to come in and win one of four or five years or six, seven, eight years. Only two of them got it done. One of those was Phil Fulmer and he had Peyton Manning. The other one was Tommy Turbeville at Auburn the year they went 14-0, and the SEC a little bit down that year, and he had Cadillac Williams and those guys. So those are the only two coaches that have pulled off that four, five, six, whatever year it was, SEC championship. So when you think about that, uh, the importance of the bump class there is this. You need that young talent to bolster and get up there. And those recruiting classes have averaged national ranking for SEC, future SEC championship coaches 4.7, a top five class. And I don't believe any of them have been below eighth in the nation. I don't think only one of those was. I think one was sixth, and the rest of them were top five. They've ranked 2.3 in conference on average. So you don't have to be number one. You don't have to be number one in, in the conference, but you got to be in striking distance. And like you said, they've averaged 2.3 five-stars, plus they averaged a five-star in the first class. So you're talking about between three and four five-stars in this first two years. And then when you go and look at the players that contributed in those title years to those championships, we're well, talking about Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin from Urban Myers Bump Class in 2006. You're talking about Jake Fromm from Kirby Smart's 2017 Bump Class in Georgia. You're talking about Cam Newton and Gene Chizik's 2010 class at, at Auburn. You're talking about Mark Ingram from Nick Saban's 2008 Bump Class at Alabama. You can do the same thing with LSU or, or from, uh, I don't know how much we could look at from Malzahn, but these are young guys that contribute in a big way. And hey, you know what? That's three Heisman winners signed in bump classes from the last six SEC championship hired coaches. Ooh. So not only are you landing on average uh, a top five class, but you're 50-50 shot of getting a Heisman winner, two, you know, 2.35 stars. So, hey, you know what? You don't have to like this reality. But if you want to, if you want to say what is the probable path, not possible, anything's possible. And I, I'm rooting for Dan Mullen, but History says you win in the first three years or you don't. And if you're going to win in the first three years, you're going to have a top five bump class, 50-50 shot of the Heisman winner. I want to go back to that 2.35 stars. I mean, that, that's something that I think really stands out. The idea that that these coaches are bringing in the elite of the elite, these guys who turn into first-round draft picks. If nothing else, they end up at NFL draft picks and major contributors. I mean, I looked at something a couple of months ago where every, every Florida five-star over the past 10 years or something like that has wound up drafted in the NFL. So those guys come in and they contribute. And to your point, Bill, contribute very, very early. And I think that's you know, that's one of the things where if you look at the the difference between, say, Georgia's class last year where they had seven guys in the top 23 
and and Florida's class right now, it, it you know these players aren't aren't bad players, but you know sitting at 200, 250, 300, um, for some of those guys, you know there there needs to be those guys in the 20, 10, 30 range in order to really have that early impact. Yeah, and there was not one of those coaches that won an SEC title that didn't have a five star in his class, and there was only one who had one that year. That was Les Miles, and he had one one of the year previous as well. So they just make an impact. They they win Heisman's, they win titles. They're crucial. It's crucial. Um, I, I just don't know what else to say about that. We're looking at 2019. If if one is not signed this year, the first year in the history of recruiting rankings where Florida will not have one, and that's just very sad. You mean on the roster at all? On the roster at all. Martez Ivy and CeCe Jefferson were the last two signed. Uh, They were signed in 2015 in McIlwain's transition class, and things have just kind of gone south from there. Right. So Florida's current class right now, ranked 33rd in in the nation, 10th in the SEC. Uh, But, you know, Mullen did have that great close uh, to 2008. Does that give us reason that he'll be able to close strong in this 2019 class? Because that's you know where everything's pointing to. It's let's wait, let's see on-field results. We know also now how he closed last season. He had a short amount of time, was able to get some guys who were leaning towards uh you know got got Emory Jones who was once committed to Ohio State, uh, Langham who would look like a Bama lean, got him from Alabama uh, to join in there. So you know, is there some reason to believe Dan Mullen will be able to close 2019 much like he did 2018? Well, if it's okay, I'd like to back up and just talk about the transition class a little bit because there's some real positives here. Um, and, and and I understand, you know, there was, in the article the other day, I, I'm really sorry, I can't really gather about the article. He said it was the, the best bump class uh, in U.S. history, and I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but there was a really, really good bump class, especially when you consider the trans- – no, I'm sorry, I said bump class – transition class. Mullen's 2018 class, the one that's showing up to campus now, his first class, was really, really, really good. It had an average player rating of 0.9075. That's once we added, added Lucas Kroll, the late edition, tied in to the mix. That's the fourth best of all SEC hires since 2005 and eighth best nationally. Out of all 132 hires, his transition class, fourth in the SEC and eighth best nationally. And when you look at the other three guys that were ahead of him in the SEC, it was Les Miles at LSU, Kirby Smart at Georgia, and Ed Orgeron at LSU. So two of those guys have won SEC titles and one of them a national title. So that's the company he's keeping with average player rate. Now, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but it, there, there are some other problems with the, the metrics. It doesn't stack up to some of the past ones. But this was a really good past transition class. Not a knock on this one at all. I really like this 2018 group. And when you go a little farther here, and you say, well, what about transition classes for coaches who had to take over four win seasons? And, man, I think it was Gator Ryan or one of the guys, and I'm sorry I can't remember your name, whoever that was, mentioned the impact of following a four win season. Well, there's only been a couple of top 10 bump classes to follow transition uh, or follow four win seasons. But for transition classes, the number one ever for a four-win team for the coach to come in and, and recruit a transition class was Gus Malzahn. He had the number 10 class in 2013. It's the only time that's ever been done. All the other t- coaches that took over four-win teams were worse than that. And the number two and the number three after Malzahn in the SEC were both Mullins. They were uh, Mullins. Number three was the Mississippi State 2009 class when he first got there. And number two was this class we just saw him put together at Florida. So as a transition class recruiter, 
Do you take that as a positive sign that he can get it done? Absolutely. It's a really good sign. He's an excellent transition class recruiter. I would even say big league. The problem is when we start examining the history of bump classes and see how that stacks up. And that's where I'm going to have to get a little negative on people because it's factual. Everybody ready to take a breath? <laughs> you prepared Go for it, Bill. Go for it, Bill. Okay. First, like I said, there's only been three top ten bump classes um, or for coaches that came in and got their second class after a four-win season the year prior to their arrival. Am I making sense on that? I feel like I'm just talking around circles. So if you had a four-win season, you come in and get your transition class, and then you go into your bump class, your second class, only uh, three times that we see top ten efforts by those bump classes. And that's why I feel like we might have set the bar a little high. Um, that was Gus Malzahn, excellent effort. Rick Neuheisel at UCLA, who had a number 10 class in 2010, and Hugh Freeze at Ole Miss in 2013. But as we know, both Neuheisel and Hugh Freeze have had some problems with the law in the past. <laughs> so in a way, I feel like it's a, a little high to expect top 10. But at the same time, and I'm not going to get into this, and I'll, I'll, I'm perfectly okay with the optimists out there ripping this apart, but when you look at it, you have hardly any teams that were top teams that actually were in that position. Um, there's a lot of Indianas and Rutgers and what have you. And we also have to remember Florida was actually kind of a five-win team because they had their cupcake, cupcake game scrapped. And when you open it up to five-win teams and coaches that took over five-win teams, well, that's where you're getting into Tom Herman's number three bump class and Gene Chizik's number six bump class and Butch Jones' number seven class, who I'll talk about in a little bit, and Jim Harbaugh's number eight, and so on and so forth. So and, unless the line between four and five wins, when you really have five win team that had a cupcake schedule to some important threshold in a way that I can't quantify, I'm not quite willing to say that they it's okay to have, you know, a, a number 15 class at Florida or whatever, whatever they end up with. Hopefully it'll be better than that, if that makes sense. Yeah, because, Bill, I, I do think, you know, fans were excited with how Mullen closed in, in 2008, and maybe we fell into the trap that 2019 class would just kind of pick up from there uh, of how that of, of how that transition class ended, you know, because we were getting rave reviews from recruits about how different the program felt uh, as compared to McElwain, and they liked the vibe. They liked what they saw during spring practice. They liked the family atmosphere of the barbecue event. Uh, they liked the vibe of all the camps that were going on. But even after all the reviews, we still saw targets commit elsewhere, or they're still kind of holding off on committing to the program right now. Yeah, and here's what works. And again, I'm breaking down numbers. Guys, please don't be mad at me for saying this, but I'm about to drop a fact on you. If we look at the game tape for Mullet, and again, this is a one – this is one time we have one instance where Mullen took over a team and had a bump class. This is only his second. We obviously can't evaluate this as a trend. I'm not saying that. Well, hopefully it's his we last two and he's here for a long time. <laughs> right, right. And, and so all I'm saying is when Mullen took over Mississippi State, this is the result. He came in and had a very strong number 17 transition class. That was up there for Mississippi State. Not their highest effort, but it was, it was right there. But he was only one of five Power Five coaches hired out of these 132. Actually, it'd be about 121 because some of them haven't had the chance yet since 2005 to see national rankings decline in each of his first three classes. 
Here's the five coaches that did that. And of course, it was Mullen. And he went from 17 to 24 to 41, I believe it was. And then Jerry Kill at Minnesota, Kyle Flood at Rutgers, Derek Dooley at Tennessee, and Derek Mason at Vanderbilt. Every other coach at least saw a rebound in year three or just didn't see that steady decline amongst three across three years. And that's not good company. Any way you slice it. So I'm hoping that was an anomaly. I'm hoping there was something going on there that we can't quantify at this point. Of course, I'm certainly hoping we see it pick up and that we don't see rankings decline this year. And I kind of still don't think we will. I think he finishes higher than 14, hopefully. Um, but if for some reason he was to finish lower than 14 this year, which is possible, I think it's going to be a little difficult. It's hard. There's a hard drop off there around 14 or 15 to get that low. But it wouldn't be a very good look to be the first guy that saw rankings decline in your bump class at two separate schools. Will, you want to jump in? <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, Dave. And, and, and again, it's just July 15th, and I know that the refrain has been it's just April, it's just May, it's just June, it's just July. We're getting towards August, and that's sort of where I've set the date, and I'm going to reserve judgment until then. But, uh, but you know, what Bill's talking about here, I mean, Derek Dooley at Tennessee went from 7th to 14th to 19th. And, you know, that's, 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 a, that's a relevant comparison to Florida when you look at those numbers, where they're sort of finishing, the type of program, the conference, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, obviously I think there were probably some on-field things with Dooley and, and none of this says anything about Mullen's on-field ability, but, you know, we, I think we understand and, or at least believe that, that the recruiting plays a role in what you see on the field. And so these are things that you got to at least look at and say, okay, well, when August comes, when September comes, once the season starts, you know, you, you're, you're pretty much set until national signing day. And, and, uh, you know, based on the stuff I've written <laughs> and the stuff I've looked at, it doesn't seem like your classes improve much from there, at least on a ratio basis. So certainly this is something I think people need to pay attention to and something that in the next in the next three or four weeks needs to turn turn in the positive direction for Mullen. And I think that's where I get surprised a little bit because the reputation for Dan Mullen is much better than a lot of those guys named. You know, it's better than Butch Jones. It's better than Derek Dooley by far. Uh, Derek Mason's pretty good reputation because he's at Vanderbilt and not doing a whole lot. But you know, given what Dan Mullen did at Mississippi State, and the and I know we're fixing to get into this about the on-field results matter uh, in the first season, but you know, shouldn't what he did at Mississippi State on the field kind of translate over into being able to sell some type of the program? I mean, you would think so, but that's not what the data says, at least not for the 2019 class. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it would be great. I hope, you know, I mean, especially at this point, I really hope that that's true. Um, and certainly there's there's variability in the data. There's some coaches who do better um, after the season or at least, you know, at National Signing Day than they did than they did prior to August 1st. But as a whole, it doesn't look like you get some giant bump from a successful from a successful season. Um, at least not until two years past that season. And so, you know, hey, if Mullen goes out and goes 10 and 2 this year, then maybe we see that in 2020. I'm not sure that we see it in the 2019 recruiting class. Yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah. Once, once I saw this topic come up, uh, that have, having to win in season one, I knew Will's, Will's eyes lit up too, because he's done a lot of research uh, about this topic in the last, you know, few weeks. So, uh, based off of what Bill says, I also look forward to what Will has to say. Should I go ahead and drop this stat about this? We, we talked about this before the show about winning in the first season. 
Might as well. Okay. Listen, guys. <laughs> Here's the, the, the key. I, all right. First of all, I, I'm not convinced that you have to win in the first season to recruit well. And we're going to give you some examples that disprove that as a rule. However, even if you do, even if the University of Florida, this scenario, if there's special circumstances where that's going to have to get done, um, he's going to have to get that done on the recruiting trail. At some point, you have to recruit these guys. And here's my concern. In 2010, Mullen's second season, now, the first season he came out, he won five games. Understandable. You're at Mississippi State following a bad coach at Mississippi State. I get it. And, and side note, I, I'm willing to give Mullen a year with a bad record. Everybody's predicting eight, nine, ten games. I, I don't need that this year. I'm looking for the long term. But in 2010, he comes out and wins nine games. And I believe they had a bowl win that, that year. That was a historic season. That was their second nine win season since 1980. I believe it was their first bowl win. It was their second bowl appearance in a decade. It was their first nine win season in 11 years, second since 1980. So that was huge for Mississippi State. And his class dropped from 24 to 41st. So I don't understand how we can say, oh, as soon as Mullen wins, eight games and shows first downs, the recruiting dam is going to break. When when that happened before at another school he was at, in the SEC, in historic fashion, recruiting got worse. Now, it did rebound a little above the second class level to 22 in year four, which kind of lends itself to what you were saying, that maybe it's a two-year delay. But now you're talking about class number three before – game-changing help arrives unless the ratings are off and that can happen um but the idea that that's going to happen it doesn't seem to match history no i mean i agree that you need to be concerned about that and we need to pay attention to that but again i, I go back to what i said earlier which is that 2010's performance I don't think has an impact on 2011's recruiting class, at least not appreciably. I right. think it has an impact on 2012. So there it's really, you know, he went from 18th year to 30th to 41st to 22nd after that historic year, which does mean that the performance on the field will eventually filter its way down to the recruiting, which is what makes sense just from a, you know, it, it makes it makes good sense to think that if you went on the field and showed that you're going to be successful, that that would that that would eventually translate. But if you look at other programs, I mean, Texas is a great example. That hasn't been necessary, and I think that's sort of where, when you look at the ideal way to build a program, when we look at Saban, when we look at Smart, when we look at Herman, even when we look at Les Miles, when we look at Urban Meyer, that's the way that really Jimbo Fisher. Those are the guys who really have built their programs through recruiting and and they don't need that win to to sell their program. And I think part of it right here is we're, for the other side of the, of the argument there, you hope Florida is kind of that lightning rod program to where if it is a eight, nine win season and you see the kids having fun, then maybe it does get the the attention of the, of the 2019 kids. But, you know, the 
picking slim pick is going to be slim pickings maybe if, if you know recruits start making their decisions even earlier uh, as you know to what we're seeing now we, we see the numbers of uh, commits that are actually going into the season there's going to be less of those targets out there but maybe you know i guess the hope from from the other side of the fan base you know they're on the other side of the numbers is maybe florida is that big time big name program and it just needs to be seen yeah, the other thing is if you're looking at like the high level talent, I mean, we were talking about the 2.3 five stars per class. If they can get a five star to flip and they can bring in one of the five stars that they're targeting right now mm-hmm. and you get two in the class, I think that makes it a little bit more palatable to have a to have an overall national recruiting ranking that's a, that's close to the transition or maybe even slightly worse. Though I imagine if they bring in two five stars, that would pull them above the 14 ranking that they had last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, but again, if you bring in high, high level guys who are going to contribute right away, I think you can probably get away with a little bit less depth on the back end. Yeah, if they bring in Kayvon Thibodeau and, and Trey Sanders, five-star defensive end and five-star run back, they're going to have a top-ten class. I mean, because – and look at it. You know, we you know we give that date of, you know, Friday Night Lights or August 1st. But, you know, given Trey Sanders, we know he's going to commit after that fact. So you're looking at – you know, you're going to see the blue chip percentage. You're going to see, you know, probably if another four- or five-star joins the fray, you're going to see that bump up just because just given the dates that we know of, Trey Sanders is going to be, you know, during the season or toward the end of the season going into early signing period. Yeah, it, it can definitely change. And, and my aim is, you know, I think you guys have already covered that well as far as the data that kind of shows when things change and when they don't. Um, mine is more to answer these, these big questions. And, and along the lines of do you have to win in a situation like this? You know, I, I hear people describe – University of Florida, like they describe Job from the Bible, like the family's been killed and you've got leprosy and all is lost and who could possibly <laughs> recruit, you know, to Florida, you know, but, you know, I think it was Ed Ashoff just posted an article um, right before the NFL draft. So the last 10 years, the, the Gators have been the number five NFL draft producing program in the country. That's a huge selling point, even though you had Jim McElwain. You know, they've had, sure, they've had a couple of four loss seasons, but they've had a nine and 10 and a, I think a 12 win season under Muschamp and went to the Sugar Bowl. You know, they've got two outright East titles and a, and a share of a third. It's not, they haven't turned into Vanderbilt. There's plenty to sell here. Yes, the facilities need work. Yes, a, a lot of things need to change. And I, and I get that. But when you look at the most comparable programs, you know, in the five seasons between 2008 and 2012, the University of Tennessee posts win totals of five, seven, six, five, and five. They hired Butch Jones as their fourth coach in four years, one month, and four days. He then promptly posts the team's five or their fourth five-win season in six years with offensive explosion that yielded the following national rankings: total offense, 103rd, scoring offense, 94th, passing offense, 109th. And Mr. Brick by Brick himself goes out and lands the number seven recruiting class. Don't tell me about your sorrows and how it can't be recruited. The excuses are getting a little freaking ridiculous. I mean, Texas, the Longhorns averaged 6.6 wins in eight seasons since 2009. And the same here, Florida kind of hit their zenith and started going downhill. And in that span, Texas has only once managed a second place finish in the Big 12 with their past four finishes being fifth, fifth, sixth, and fourth, Tom Herman shows up, wins seven games, number three recruited class. I, I just, 
I just don't want to hear it. it. It's just at some point you have to say, I'm being a little unreasonable. <laughs> I mean, they can recruit to this school. And, and Mullen may be struggling. Doesn't mean I want to fire him. Maybe not be his strong suit because, like you said, he's a great on-field coach. And so maybe this takes time. But we, we've got some answers here. And the answer is maybe Florida has problems, but things should turn up from where they are now. If they are where they are now come signing day, which they may not be, then it's time to look in the mirror. Thoughts on that, Will? I'm just <laughs> nodding over here and enjoying the sermon, man. <laughs> that's, been, that's been, I think. Hey, and another And another thing. Okay. I gotta let this out. <laughs> Everybody talks about, oh, we haven't shown any offense. We haven't shown any offense. We haven't had a good passing game. UF has only been out of the national top 10 in total defense twice since Tebow left. Are you telling me that that's not attractive to defensive recruits? Are you telling me that they're walking in the meeting with Mullen and be like, Mullen, I'm thinking about committing. And I know you, you know, I was talking to Sincere and he wants me to rush the passer, but. Are you guys going to run some RPO? Because I really want to see some more fireworks. That's not the way it's going. They're saying, can you get me to the draft? Can you keep me qualified? And if you're going to, if you can recruit, you can recruit. It's just that simple. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, go ahead. well, this is the thing that I think gets me is that if if you're selling, if you're selling your program, you should be able to walk in and say, look at my track record as an offensive head coach. Look at my track record when I was here the last time. Flash your rings, and it's a pretty easy sell. The other thing is is that is is that you can also then sell playing time, right? <laughs> I mean, if the offense is that bad, it seems like you should be able to say, hey, you can come in here and make and make these guys earn their jobs because they weren't earning them before, and so. You know, there's going to be playing time available for people who come in and show out. And that's just as attractive for somebody who wants to get to the NFL, you know, three years in. If you got to sit on the bench for two years behind three, five stars in Alabama, you know, at some point it becomes advantageous for you to come to Florida where you're going to get that playing time. Yeah. And I mean, let's be honest here. All three of us, I think, agree. I think this offense is going to be fine over the long haul. I think he's going to get it going. I think I don't necessarily think there'll be a. Um, a fireworks show for, through the passing game, but I think they're going to run the ball effectively. I think the quarterback is going to be a great dual threat in his offense over the long haul. And, and so I, I feel like if we as no-nonsense type analysts are convinced of that, then it should be doable to convince talent of that as well. Well, and I don't, I don't think that you know, the expectation that Mullen's going to make the program better, I think, is a completely reasonable one. The, the, thing that, the thing that we're looking at is saying, okay, what do you need to do to win SEC championships? And by proxy, national championships, because pretty much everybody who wins the SEC championship goes on and wins the national championship, or at least is in the playoff. And that's really where we're focused. I mean, you know, if he, bring, if he brings in 14th-ranked recruiting classes the entire time he's here, he may make a playoff. He may win the SEC, but the numbers don't indicate that that's going to be a real easy thing to do, particularly with the two behemoths that are in the that are in the conference right now. I mean, if you look at the top five teams over the past ten years, there's always a team or two in that sort of twelve to fifteen average ranking who who makes its way into the top five, makes its way into the playoff. But usually, there's a couple of combination or combinatorial things there. There's a really elite quarterback. And they happen to hit a conference where the where the guy who where the big behemoth in the conference is having some struggles. So if you look at Oklahoma the last three years, they've been right around 14th, I think, in recruiting ranking. But Texas has really been struggling, and that's the big boy in the Big 12. 
And so Oklahoma may have some trouble in the next five or six years because Texas may be the big boy again with Tom Herman there. And, and we're going to find out real quick whether that makes a huge difference in terms of Texas's ability to dominate that conference. You mean like when Clemson won their first nat- or first uh, ACC title and under Swinney, it was the same way. They kind of snuck in there as a four-loss champion. And everybody, lo- and I'm not going to get started on how dumb this Clemson excuse is, but um, Florida State and Miami combined for 10 losses that year. And then Clemson was able to sneak in as a four-loss champion. It, it helps when the king is down a little bit. Well, and, and I mean, so you look at it, and the first three years when he was there, he had Colin Harper and Kyle Parker as his quarterbacks. And then Taj Boyd comes in and immediately, you know, a five-star candidate and immediately starts playing well and really saved his job in 2011, even though he didn't, even though he was just, he was, he was about average that first year, but then all of a sudden was an elite quarterback in 2012 and 2013. And then follows that up with sort of a half season, Nicole Stout, and then Deshaun Watson coming in. And so, you know, Swinney had the benefit of having two elite, elite quarterbacks. And if Florida can find that guy, I think they can. I mean, I, th- I think they could really win and win a lot with with the recruiting classes that they've had over the last four or five years. But you have to have that elite quarterback to do it. And as of now, they don't have it. And I think it's a well, maybe it, they do. They might have an Emory Jones guy. Sure, sure. But I mean, you know, you look at you look at the teams that that are consistently in that playoff. It's Oklahoma, or I'm sorry, it's Alabama, it's Ohio State. <laughs> it's those guys, right? It's Georgia now. I mean, those are the teams that when you really look at it and say who's who's in that game on a regular basis, you know, those are the teams that are typically in there. And you get a team like TCU will break in every once in a while. Michigan State will break in every once in a while. But at the end of the day, Alabama's not there because of A.J. McCarron and Greg McElroy. <laughs> They're there because of that beast of a defensive line and you know all 22 guys starting in the nfl from the teams that were three you know from three years ago i believe those were the only two three-star quarterbacks that have won sec championships which plays into your point right because when you're surrounded by four and five star guys then it makes it a whole lot <laughs> he's like here just hand it to this guy <laughs> so should we talk about the third year bump class yeah, and before we go with that, you know, I really like the comparisons to you know Tennessee and, and their four or five six win seasons for years in in a row, and and the Texas to Tom Herman comparison too. But a lot of the angst from Gator fans too that are you know are, are not satisfied with recruiting is right now is also seeing those traditional schools with brand new head coaches this year. Not not necessarily struggling as much as Florida is on the trail right now. You, you know, you see Pruitt and Tennessee uh, being able to recruit, and, and and you know they only have two more commits right now than Florida does, but you know their quality is pretty high up there right now. And you see Texas A and M and Jimbo in year one. He's got that. He's got the recruiting their way up. You see what Taggart and FSU is doing. So, you know, it's not necessarily also just what Florida's doing. It's also seeing historically what has happened at your rivals and then being able to recruit well and what's currently happening happening at first year coaches and, and, and their first year at those jobs. Yeah, I think Georgia, uh, Tennessee and South Carolina have a combined I think it's 15 commits that are rated higher than Florida's best. And they all have a five star. South Carolina should not be in that group. Tennessee should not be in that group because remember we talked about Tennessee's adversity and now fast forward another regime change in Tennessee and they're outpacing Florida right now. Now, will they run out of gas? Maybe. Again, this could all change and I'm not saying it won't, um, but right now the hole is just getting deeper by the day and, and Friday night lights. 
is now receiving some undue pressure. Uh, you shouldn't be counting on Friday night lights to, to bring you out of such a hole. Can it happen? Sure. It's just you really need things to pick up rather quickly. All right. Yeah. Well, now we can go to the, uh, what was it? Yeah. Yeah. Your third year of the, you know, we have brought up and Will and I, and I, I didn't really see it anywhere else much before Will and I brought it up that the the bump class, the true the true bump class could be in year three where the on-field results are what we see. Will we see the maybe, – maybe it's a seven-win season, but the offense starts showing signs late and maybe you upset or beat FSU at the end of the year or you get the eight wins or you get the nine wins and make Florida football exciting again. What, you know, what, what could that do for a third-year bump class? Well, first of all, side note, uh, the winner of the Florida-Florida State game, going back to the 2004 game when Ron Zook won at Ron Zook Field at FSU and then was promptly fired, Urban Meyer came in and had his transition class. That year, uh, Florida's class was ranked lower than FSU. But every year since, the winner of that game has had a higher ranked uh, recruiting class than the loser. That, so, game, that game was huge for Urban Meyer. No, 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 not that game. That was the next. That was the one before yeah, yeah, I was just pointing, just to in general. Of, oh yeah, of, of how big that was. Florida winning that game in two thousand five. I think it was. I, I think that kind of springboard Urban Meyer and, and his recruiting at Florida. Yeah, and, and it, that has to repeat itself this year. You you can't let tack on the streak into another coach's regime. Uh, it's got to end. Florida's got to beat Florida State this year. There's just no way around. Biggest game of the year, in my opinion, right now. I don't care what happens with Georgia. I don't care what happens with Tennessee, any of them. you got to beat Florida State. Um, In-state recruiting right now is I mean, it's a shambles. The, I mean, just as, as it sits right now, it could change. Um, but they've got to beat Florida State. Um, that's one of the things where I can say the numbers actually back up and they correlate to improvement, or at least relative to their rival. Uh, on the field and in recruiting. Um, you want to you talk about this third-year bump idea, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I hear this a lot, too, and I think it's a very valid point. Uh, and this is one that I think is actually well thought out. Uh, I've had a couple people mention to me that the constraints of the early signing day, you know, the changing dynamics of the calendar. Remember, we've got this – everything's squeezed now, and that's why people are concerned. You've got the summer-long black or dead period where they can't visit – that's going on right now. You've got the one weekend to have a Friday night lights camp. You're competing with everybody else. Florida State and Miami are piling up visitor lists just like Florida is. And then you're going to go into the season. And so you can't really recruit full board the season. You're you're playing football. And then you've got the early signing day that creeps up on you. So we're running out of time for 2019. And so some people say, hey, maybe this class suffers. And maybe that's right. And maybe it's uh, 2020 where he has his bump, where we really start to see the dividends of Mullen's impact on the recruiting trail and getting the guys that he wants to target. So what I did, as I looked over those 132 hires, I keep saying 132, there's 11 of them that haven't had this chance yet, so 121. And I wanted to see how many of those guys, after not having a top 10 class, did have a top 10 class in the third year, in the third class. So they didn't have one in year one, they didn't have one in year two, but they did have one in year three. I found three of them out of 121. So that's 2%. This happens 2% of the time. Those three were Debo Swinney, Mark Richt, and Steve Spurrier. And that was Mark Richt at Miami, of course, and that was Steve Spurrier at South Carolina. So Debo Swinney comes in, takes over a seven-win team, wins nine 
And then only six wins his second year. Their classes, his first class, 36, then 27, then finally had a number 10 class crept into the top 10. Um, Mark Rigg at Miami takes over an eight-win team. Wins nine and ten games first two years. His three first three classes were 22, 12, and 8. So saw steady improvement. Steve Spurrier is the one that's a little different here. He only took over a six-win team, won seven and eight. His classes went 18, 33, and then all the way up to seven. So he's the only one of the three who didn't see steady double-digit improvement uh, in each year. And it's also worth noting that out of this 2%, out of these three coaches, only one of them has won a title, uh, even a conference title to this point. And uh, that was Dave Swain. Now, I know the other two won. I know Spurrier and, and Rick both had SEC titles. I'm talking about at these teams. So that has only been done one time that it led to a conference title since 2005, and that was Swain. And I will say, Bill, if you look at those three coaches, though, after that third year class, you could say the trend was up though. After that, sure. After year three, that's you know Clemson's kind of started rising or rising a little bit. Mark Rick, we saw their season that they had last year. Uh, you could you would say that program is probably trending up. And of course, what Spurrier did at South Carolina after year three, you know that program was having its some of its best years ever. So maybe if that does happen, you know, as you said, the, the, the slim chance it hasn't happened a lot. But if it does happen, hopefully that means the the trend uh, is definitely you know go, going up for a few years. Yeah, and Spurrier was dealing with Urban over there too, man. I mean, yeah. I think if Urban hadn't been in there, he'd have won maybe the the conference. Um, I mean, he, had, he took South Carolina to eleven win seasons. That's awesome. Um, and what I don't know, because remember, I said I was going to try to add to the conversation here. I'm fully open if you if you guys have data out there that says, hey, there's actually a case for a fourth or fifth year bump. Sometimes. What if Mullen does take four or five years and it we have to be patient with him? Takes eight, nine win seasons, maybe has a seven in there in year three or four, but then really gets it cranking and recruiting and it really is a long rebuild. I haven't pulled that data. I just don't know. Um, but even if we find it based on the numbers I've got, I can I can promise you it's going to be an extra, extremely rare occurrence. And I'm hoping that things turn up so we don't have to hope for that. I, I'll be if things don't look probable and they only look possible, I'll be there right along with you guys saying, man, I'm hoping it's hope that this happens, but it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> so let, let's just hope it gets in a good position where that doesn't become the determining factor. Well, so one guy who's not in this data set, but I think sort of fits the general theme is James Franklin up at Penn State. So his fourth year, I think, got into the top 10. Um, and then the other thing is, is that I, I realize this is 2% of the time that it's happened since 2005. But if we're going to be honest, of those 132 Power 5 hires, I mean, you did mention that some of those were Indiana and Kansas and yeah. you know teams that just have no shot at a top 10 class just because of um, just because of who they are. And you know, it's no it's no shame for the coach from Indiana <laughs> to see a third year class <laughs> go up to forty fifth or something like that, right? I mean, that th there's no way like the, these numbers in particular. And again, it's it's not a criticism of the numbers; it's just an interpretation of the of the data to say, hey, there's probably maybe thirty of those guys who were the Power Five hires since two thousand five, and if three of those guys saw the third year bump class, then you're really talking like a ten percent probability, not a two percent probability, and seems a little bit more likely with somebody who'd be at Florida. Here's the one problem 
with the James Franklin example, and it's the same thing that that haunts the Clemson explanation. What we won't call an excuse <laughs> is that yes, first three seasons, James Franklin's national rankings were twenty fourth, fourteenth, and twentieth. That certainly wouldn't be historically good enough in the SEC, but here's the difference. In the Big Ten, that correlated to conference rankings of third, second, and fourth. So while it wasn't elite recruiting on a national scale, it was elite in the Big Ten. To be in that top three group with a number two and a number three and a number four class, that's putting you within striking distance at the top of your conference and he was able to squeak out an 11-win season in 2016 and then kind of went off to the races from there. Unfortunately, SEC coaches just do not have that luxury. That's why, like, Jim McElwain, hey, I got the 21st class in my transition class in 2015. That was 10th in the conference. That puts you in the cellar. And so people, people don't like hearing that, but what that means is against your conference opposition, you're going to be outgunned most week from week. Excuse me, most weeks from a talent perspective. Dan Mullen is a great coach. Jim McElwain might have been a good offensive guy, but if if you have to face five, six, seven teams that have more talent than you do, it's not a reasonable expectation to say, "Hey, coach, go X and O me a victory every single week." And well, it took- is, is, isn't that exactly what we saw at Mississippi State? Yes. That is exactly what we saw. He beat the the opponents that were the worst. You guys talked about that last week, right? Yeah. Wasn't that you? Somebody just came out with it. Maybe it was Thomas Goldcamp. Yeah, Thomas. Yeah. He was excellent against the opponents that had equal or lesser talent, but he didn't win very much. Uh, It was less than 25% of the time, I think, against uh, opponents that had more talent than him. Or at least ranked opponents. I might, you know what, scratch that. I might be misspeaking, but. It dropped off dramatically. All right, Bill, my, my head's spinning here. Did I just hear you say after the last three years that maybe McIlwain is a good offensive coach? <laughs> well, no, no. I, I'm just ruined saying. all credibility, Dave. I mean, yeah. All credibility. Straight down. I, I'm, just, I'm playing devil's advocate here. That's what I do. You know, I'm, I'm saying that even if he was, it's like who is that good of a coach to say, just give me that bag of rocks and I'm going to score 30 points on you? I mean, here it was, just, here it was and, you know, and that's yeah. not fair either because even like three-star athletes are really good athletes and they're, you know, it's just, there is a drop-off. They, they are good. They put out a lot of pros, but you don't want to have to face the elite of the elite every week when you have some pretty good players. Yeah. Here's part of that stat from Thomas. Uh, he said, many have questioned Dan Mullen's ability to win the big game, 0-9 versus Alabama, uh, but can't deny he wins the games he's supposed to. In 115 games at Mississippi State, he only lost four games to teams that finished with our worst records. That's 46 total losses. Yeah, and that tells me that the, the, the floor for this guy is probably seven, eight wins a year. Yep. Maybe nine. But is the ceiling with lesser talent higher than nine or ten? And so I think we're talking about is this guy going to be good at Florida or is he going to be great, where, which is where everybody wants him to be? Well, I mean, and what was the reason people said he would was because they said he would recruit better at Florida. Yeah, and, and so far that, well, I guess it, it kind of did happen in the transition class. Like yeah. I said, it was fantastic. But right now it's to be determined on the bump class and the time is running short, I think is the fair way to say it. Well, and, and, and that's the thing, right, is that we can look at the trends, we can look at what happens before August, but we said earlier, or, you know, I said earlier that if a couple of five stars flip, it changes the changes the dynamic considerably. And, again, if you look at this year, Tennessee, 
has has more talent if you look at the last four classes. Mississippi State does not. LSU does. Um, Georgia does, and Florida State does. And so that's an eight and four season. If Mullen does exactly what he's supposed to do, it's an eight and four season. I think everybody's probably pretty happy with that. I know I'd be happy with an eight and four season. Um, and, and so, you know, if he's got to do what he's supposed to do this year, and if he can bring in, say, like a 10th or 11th rated class next year, or maybe even get into that top 10 with getting a five star to flip or something like that. Well, now all of a sudden you're talking about a nine-win season next year and, and sort of following, a, you know, again, it's a path that's less traveled by some of these SEC guys. But with Kirby and Saban, it may it may really require a slower build. It's no mm-hmm. one has no one has had to go up against this. And so we can look at we can look at what you have to do to compete nationally. We can look at what you have to do to compete in the SEC. But at the end of the day, this is pretty this is kind of anomalous to have this kind of recruiting in both the East and the West at the same time. It is. This is a tough spot. And, and that's why I keep saying when, when I see these predictions, eight, nine, 10 wins, and they say, Hey, all I want to see is nine wins and a top 50 offense. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, what did you just say? <laughs> Guys, this is probably not going to be a top 50 offense and nine wins while possible. If it happens, I'm telling you, it's not likely. So if it happens, you should celebrate and say, this guy just did something special. If he turns around Felipe Franks, you should say he did something special. That's that's why I, I want to tell you when the negative thing is the negative thing. So when it happens and he overcomes it, then it's really special. You don't have to say, oh, uh, you know, okay, of course he did that. No, that would be really special. And I think we might see six or seven wins, and it could be eight. And Mullen could be doing a good job at that. He may take some time. At the same time, back to those stark realities we talked about, History is not on his side if he comes in and wins six games and has the number 14 recruiting class that doesn't put him on the path to a championship. Doesn't mean he can't get on it at some point, but it's just it's just the way it is. Yeah, but this is why we want to focus on process, right? I mean, right. I, I'm always harping on that, and I think you are as well, that, that we're much more interested in is the process correct with recruiting? Is the process correct on the field? Is the process correct with how the quarterback's being selected or how the quarterbacks are being played? And I think if you look back at McElwain, especially with some of the information that's come out since he was let go with the strength and conditioning programs and sort of the relationships he had with some of the high school coaches around the area and all that sort of stuff, and even sort of the infighting that was going on between the staff, you know, that the process was flawed. And so, you know, you look out on the field and in year three, you see the results of that. And so if some of those things are corrected in recruiting, in the strength and conditioning room, in the quarterback room, all those sorts of things, then you can expect to see a significant turnaround, but you can't correct. But but that sometimes means taking a step back. I'd be perfectly okay with six and six. I'd be okay with worse than that if it meant that they found a quarterback who could lead the team moving forward. And if it meant that the team played in a more disciplined manner than it has the last three years under McElwain, you know, sacrifice a game in 2018 so that your players know they're going to sit if they do something that they shouldn't, (laughs) you know, in 2019 and 2020. So again, I think process is important. And that's sort of our, again, one of the things that we want to evaluate when we're evaluating anything, including recruiting is just the process sound. Discipline now prevents credit card fraud arrest three years from now. <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds like a, that sounds like a t-shirt from Forrest Gump. What? You, 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 tell me you don't want eight players going away again before a season starts? <laughs> well, hey, you know, part of that, and, and the one big thing, I, I've liked a lot of what I've seen out of Mullen so far, uh, but we need to talk about the great uh, 
California adventure in here. Yeah, and that's that's part of the process that uh, was questionable for me uh, from the get from to begin with, uh, and, and part of it is you know he could be already behind the eight ball recruiting in state because of this. You know, now I haven't been told the total reason, and it may be related, it may not be, but you know there's uh, some South Florida coaches and recruits not on the best term best of terms with Mullen. Uh, another reason uh, in state recruiting could be behind is because the staff not not having heavy ties in the state. And hey, look, we knew that coming in. It may take some time to build their relationships and we talk about this may take longer than than you know we want or, or some expected they look these guys don't have a, a foothold in florida it, it's going to take some time probably uh but especially you know that the national focus and especially that california focus where the gators have struck out so far that was that i questioned it from the begin with i was hoping you know, they, they, it would come to fruition, and, and those guys would end up committing to Florida. But you know, going back and looking at it and what's happened, I think uh, a lot of people, that's probably their first complaint right now with recruiting. Yeah, and just to clarify what we're talking about here, if you've been following recruiting, you, you probably know, and you may not, um, they have made California a point of emphasis. Uh, debatable how much. I mean, I think there's about 30 players between it in 2018 and 19 classes that that list California offers on the uh, 24/7 database. Uh, but that doesn't mean they were all high targets. But the plan, obviously, and if even the more optimistic uh, analysts will tell you that those that are are connected, that Florida thought. They were in the picture, and they were in the picture for Micah Pittman, who may still commit to Florida. He's a wide receiver uh, with Florida roots, uh, but he now appears to be trending to Oregon. Um, Ethan Ray, the tight end, they thought they had him, but really USC was just slow playing him, and he now committed to USC. And uh, there was, I can't remember the offensive tackle's name they thought we were in for. And, of course, Chris Steele, the cornerback. It was a, They were all high-rated blue-chip players, and Florida was looking to, to take – anywhere from three to five of these guys, I guess. And I've read multiple reports that they believe that their, their connections to their secondary, secondary staff. And then I guess through English, the uh, safety coach, they, they plan to take three or four California recruits per year. And it, it, I need a BC headache powder when I read things like that, because that's insane. (laughs) Just, I'm just going to tell you right now, and we can get into the facts of why if you want to. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's just, and I've said this on Bill King's show and I've said this on uh, this podcast, when you can just get in a car and drive two hours north, two hours south, I, I, I questioned. I mean, yeah, you know, yes, you, you were going after high targets. Yes, you thought you had a good play with them. But, you know, it's when, when you're home base, when you can drive and just go get athletes probably just as good. That's why I, I question it. Okay, here's some stats. Because I, I know I'm probably making more people mad throughout the show here, but here's here's the facts of the matter. According to College Football Data Lab, the median distance from home for 2017 blue chips was 192 miles. It's 2,300 miles from Chris Steele's hometown to Gainesville. Okay, nationally, over 76% of blue chips play college ball within 500 miles of home. Now, also consider that since 2002, which is kind of the history of unified composite rankings, it gets sketchy before that. Florida has signed. And that's the past 17 or 18 recruiting classes. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight players from California, only five of which were blue chip players. So through all the Ron Zook years, through all the Urban Meyer years, the Will Muschamp, Jim McElwain in the first year of uh, Dan Mullen, 
They have signed eight players. Only once have they signed multiple blue chips from the state of California. That was in 2010. Two years, actually, it would have been just over a year of calendar year removed from a national championship in the peak of the Urban Meyer era when they signed Ronald Powell and Josh Shaw. Josh Shaw probably went back home to California. Ronald Powell is the only blue chip player they've ever had significant production from, from California. I think Carl Moore had 300 yards receiving for his career or something like that. So if Urban Meyer couldn't get it done in California more than that, why in the world did they think they were going to go not at the peak of Florida football, but in the valley of Florida football and waltz out there and said, hey, we've got a compelling recruiting pitch? I don't understand that. Boom. <laughs> and, and okay, here, let me let me take it a step further because I know that's not going to be good enough for some people. Let me explain to people, and they say, okay, well, it doesn't cost that much to throw a guy an offer. Well, yes, it does. You gotta communicate. And, and clearly, if you're not communicating as much as the other school you're losing, and maybe that is what they did, and they lost out to those guys. But even if you get those guys, it's not just about allocating more resources in the front, front end to get their commitment. Even if you do get the commitment for the rest of the cycle, this would have been from the summer to the early national signing day, you're playing defense against powerful, trendy programs like USC and Oregon that have a compelling distance pitch. And they are in the ears of these recruits constantly saying, hey, you don't have to go 2,500 miles from home. Don't you want to see your family play? And it's a compelling pitch. And so what happens is you have committed to the recruit and given that spot away, which then when Kyer Elam or whoever sees Chris Steele commit, well, maybe they feel like, well, I kind of wanted to be the big dog. And that's no knock on Kyer Elam. Maybe he doesn't feel that way, but a lot of blue chip players do. And that's fine. They, I'd probably be concerned with it if I had a, a kid playing ball. So not only that, then if you get them over to campus, they're away from their family, they're away from their support structure, and then you got to keep them engaged and productive and manage the logistics and keep them from getting homesick, homesick or else they go back home like Chris Steele did. So you're looking at a high investment, low yield situation that has historically not produced at all what you're aiming for, and now you're striking out. Why not focus on the number one talent producing state in the nation, which happens to be Florida? It doesn't make any sense to me, and, and I'll get to this Florida bit in a second here. Um, no, I'm going to get to it now. Your best recruit in the state of Florida right now is ranked number 43. He's a lower-end four-star. Florida State saying, Miami. You're saying 43rd ranked player in the state. In, in the state, not the nation. He's not close to that in the nation. Uh, and good player. I like it. It's Wardrick Wilson, offensive lineman. I like him. But Florida State Miami have, unless something changed today, 14 commitments in the state of Florida higher than Florida's best. Yes, I know the state is a little down this year, but those resources could have been allocated to Florida for a lot safer bet, even if it's a little lesser player. Yes, I know he has to chase kids that are at the top. We don't want him playing the McElwain game. But you have to chase kids you can sign. And there's no historical evidence that says you can go pluck three or four blue chips when you have a down program and bring them across the country. The same people that are saying you can't recruit to Florida because the program's so bad are the same people that are saying, oh, he's not, you know, it's great to go out to California. Well, which is it? Is the program sellable or if it's not? And if its program is sellable, why not shore up your own state? Because right now you get wrecked in the state of Florida. Well, on those seven teams you've got listed there that uh, 
that have higher recruits from Florida ranked higher than, than UF's best. You've got FSU in Miami. Okay, that makes some sense. You've got Georgia. Okay, Kirby. You've got Ohio State. Okay, Urban Meyer has some ties. You've got Clemson. They've won national championships. There, there's no reason why you should have Oregon and Penn State. There just isn't. And, you know, that that fundamentally is a problem when you've got a team like Penn State coming in and pulling guys out of the state of Florida that, quite frankly, Florida wants to have. And, you know, that it's just an issue. That's the, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, and, you know, they, Dunmore is the, the latest wide receiver to to go and, and to go to Penn State. And, hey, look, was, you know, uh, Dunmore was a uh, – he was a commit to Florida, right, at one time, Bill? Yeah, he was. Yeah, and, right. that, and, and the connection there was Juwan Sider. Yep. The coach who they kind of relegated to tight ends, and that was seen as a demotion to him, and he he headed elsewhere. So effectively, what you've got is your coach with your best Florida connection. You let him leave, and then you shifted some of your folks away from Florida. And I'm telling you, I've had people tell me they're connected to the program that there's only been a select number of players they focused on in Florida that's a little bit narrower of a scope. And so while the cat's away the cider will play and he's been <laughs> running them down in negative recruiting. That's what these coaches do. So not only have you focused elsewhere, you've let the guy that you let go be not only not an asset to you, but a hindrance to you. And so it's a one, two punch right now. And it's really hurting him. Yeah, Bill, uh, what Will was saying while, while you stepped out for a second, it, it is kind of surprising. You know, you got Penn state and Oregon, you know, the other schools on the list that, or have highly ranked uh, or higher ranked recruits in the state of Florida than Florida does. You know, Georgia is understood, Ohio State is understood, Clemson is understood to a point. You know, but really Oregon and Penn State. You know, Oregon, I guess you could say Taggart's connections uh, kind of started that, and and Crystal Ball kind of just kind of picked up from where he left off and to get guys there. Uh, but it still doesn't look right when Penn State and Oregon are bringing better state of Florida recruits as it stands right now. To as their, it stands right now. To yeah. Their you got seven programs with a higher rated recruit than Florida in, this, in their own state. That's that cannot be. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to ready to assign blame at this point, and I'm not going to say it's final because it's not. And I think they are going to get some some higher rated Florida recruits. That should be said right now. They're going to get some Florida kids. Maybe the Summerall and the Elums. Elums a top ten in the state. And it's going to improve there. It really is. But these it, momentum is a, a funny thing in recruiting. And you don't want to be staring down the season when you have uh, less communication with these kids and let that start to get in their ear that, hey, you've seen Florida's class. We're building something special over here, and they're not. And It's time to get that going. Yes, well, again, again, it's a process question, right? I mean, it, you know, what you just said about the great California adventure and, you know, you got guys from Oregon pulling people from Florida, but Florida's struggling to pull people from California. So, I mean, you know, if you're going to look at those two things as an equal situation, all right. Well, you know, you should. You know, you would think that Florida would have a more compelling, more compelling case than Oregon would. And then, um, you know, again, it, it's the process that concerns me, not necessarily the results. If they had, if they had seventeen blue chips from Florida who were interested right now, or twenty blue chips from Florida who were interested, and were clearly on the board, and were clearly guys that they were targeting, and clearly guys they've been communicating with this entire time, then it wouldn't really be a concern. But to have to have a close like they did in the transition class indicates that the process was flawed. And to your point, Bill, about them talking about picking three or four guys out from California yearly, that indicates a that indicates a process issue. And it'll be interesting to see whether next whether next cycle that 
that process changes or whether they still think they're going to be able to go out there and bring guys back from the West Coast. Hey, you know what? You can get it done more power to you, but if you don't. You got a list of people like us. Right. And, and, you know, people have mentioned a lot about Meyer going out of state and recruiting nationally and things like that. And saying that Mullen, I guess, has said that he wants to emulate that and kind of that 2009, 2010 model. But Meyer built his championship roster at Florida in those first two classes, um, which were made up of 65% and 63% in state kids, at least the first uh, championship roster. And I know the 2005 actually didn't work out real well, but that 63% uh, bump class is what really launched him. And that's when he had uh, 2006, had 10 of the top 25 in Florida. That's a stark contrast to what we're seeing right now. Uh, and it gave him a foundation that he could really build on. And then Springboard, once he had some success to cherry picking from around the country. But right now, Mullen, uh, who was the first coach since Meyer in like 2010, I think it was, to have less than 50% in-state kids. And he's depending on this. And even not uh, California, but they were hoping for Jaleel Billingsley from Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jalen Jones is from what Maryland. Yep. Uh, Jalen Humphreys, the top-rated commit, uh, and Tyron Hopper, the h- highest-rated linebacker, both from Georgia. And I'm okay with out-of-state recruiting. And that's a, a big difference because if a kid's five, 700, 1,000 miles away, it's a heck of a lot different logistically to get his family down and to get home for visits than it is 2,500 miles away. That's a whole different situation. Yeah, because you brought up the, the troubles of the kids that Florida has actually brought from California. But we can all remember names from the DMV area and, from, of course, from Georgia. Yeah, we can, point, we can point to plenty of those guys who completely worked out well just fine for Florida. You know, maybe distance does play a factor in, in kids coming all the way across country, as you, as you mentioned. You're, you're homesick. You know, you know, your mind is not totally in to where you're at at school. You're, you're missing your parents. You're missing your friends. You're a 1,000 miles away compared to, you know, mom and dad can take a short flight down or you can take a short drive up to another state. You know, things like that probably do play into it. So now, and, and as, we, as we mentioned, you know, Brandon Spikes, Percy Harvin, Chris Sweet, uh, you know, Jared Davis from just right there. It, it's not, you know, it's the state of Georgia, the state of North Carolina, the DMV area. It, it has worked out pretty well from Florida, but it's still cherry picking and still ba- building and basing your recruiting classes in the state of Florida. <sighs> <laughs> I'm ready for things to get better, guys. And uh, you know, that's my one major complaint. I wouldn't have let Cider go, but that's that that really is money more quarterback and really not even Monday morning. It's uh, third quarter quarterback and we'll see what he comes up with. And, and um, hopefully this gets better because right now it's not down the right path. Well, what it does, we'll tell you, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the things. Yeah, is that, and I'll celebrate it. Is that we do not think this is the end by any means, but at the same time, we need to look at what's historically happened. And again, to your point, Bill, if Mullen can overcome some of these things that we're indicating, then, Hey, tip your hat to the guy. Cause he's done something that other people haven't. Right. Well, yeah, the same, I, the same thing as like when three stars overachieve. You don't say they don't matter. You say this kid did something special. Yep. There you go. Don't rob them of the glory. Um, yeah, because I can't wait. Yeah, I, I look forward to Florida getting a recruit because I get to, I get to, you know, I get to tweet out that picture of Dan Mullen's face coming out of the Florida plane. <laughs> you know, Florida's got another commit. And he's got the big That's smile right. on his face. I, I love being able to tweet that, so I want to tweet it some more. Yeah. Hey, we got a question or two, right? Yeah. Go ahead and get some questions. I know uh, I'll, I'll let you control the questions since you, uh, you know, uh, I, we got a ton of them. So I'll let you control them since we kind of went long here almost. 
going on. Yeah. I, I went a half now. A couple of them. Uh, Maverick uh, at LMI I twenty three asked me who my top five most wanted recruits are. Um, the guy to have guys for this cycle, and he said realistic targets on the board. Number one, I went with Jalen Jones, and that's not a cop out. Got to fix quarterback. This team and program is going nowhere until that's fixed. And Mullen went out and got a guy he believes in, and I, I will give Mullen the benefit of the doubt with quarterbacks. He became a four star. Mean some good criteria there. He's my number one. Number two is Trey Sanders. He's the best chance they've got at a five-star right now. Uh, Game-changing running back. I would love to see a five-star caliber back in Mullen's offense. I think it could be devastating. And I don't want to face a 2019 season and have the, the Florida Gators without a five-star on the roster. I don't think that's sunk into people yet, what, what that symbolizes. Um, so I really want him on there. Number three, Kayvon Thibodeau from California. I know we've railed against the California thing, um, but he's the number one player in the country. So I'm going to make an exception. <laughs> if you feel like you can land the number one player in the country and he was the guy they were chasing, I'd be okay with it. He's And, hey, you landed two five-stars. Like I, I mentioned earlier in the show, you're going to have a top-ten class. Florida comes up with two five-stars. It's going to be hard to say they're not on, on the right track. It's going to be really, really hard. And I, I, I want them to be on the right track. Um, number four is Kyir Elam, the cornerback. Uh, I believe he's the nephew of Matt Elam, uh, former Florida safety and NFL player. Uh, Got to capitalize on those family connections, and I don't think it's a shoe in at this point. Uh, need a need an elite DB in this class, and he can be that guy. Uh, he's a top ten player in Florida, and he can be a real rallying point uh, for the class, especially if he were to commit soon. I really wish he would. Uh, number five, I was kind of having a hard time with this because there's a lot of them in this kind of range here that could have been here. But I went with Keon Zipperer, uh, the tight end out of Lakeland, uh, because Florida doesn't really have much of a recruiting blue, uh, footprint right now. They don't have a whole lot of home turf to rely on, and we talked about that. At least that's not not that's demonstrating. And I know they have advantages in relationships, practically speaking, that are helping them in the state. Um, but I'd like to see them reestablish Lakeland after signing James Robinson out of there, continue that pipeline. We need pipelines right now. And we also need wins over Florida State and Miami. And this would be a guy that they could go out and say, hey, we're going to take some of the players you want and establish ourselves as a force to be reckoned with on the recruiting trail. And if they land Zipper, that would be a good sign of that. Yeah, I like that list. Agree with it for the most part, except uh, I don't think Thibodeau is realistic. So I'll take no, him off I, the, I know it's a stretch. Yeah, I'll take him off the list, but I will put one of the Mississippi guys there, either flipping Billingsley, who it looked like you were leading for at one time, or the one black uh, from there, the linebacker. I think is a, who's a playmaker there. I, I would just flip. Thibodeau out for one of those two guys. You know, being from the state of Mississippi, I still think it would say something as well to be able to pull one of those highly rated recruits from the state uh, Dan Mullen just came from. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to read the reason I put Thibodeau on there is he is coming to Friday Night Lights, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm not completely writing him off. But. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's see. On to the next one. Uh, Hunter Diaz uh, from Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Um, thank you for your military service. He, he messaged me and said, hey, do you mind answering him your opinion? Why does Florida – not getting any major commitments as of yet. Well, they do have a few major commitments in, in um, Humphreys and, and uh, Jalen Jones and Hopper. Some really – Wardrick Wilson's a good player. Uh, they've got some good players there, but they are obviously struggling at the moment uh, and have missed out on, on several guys they thought they were going to get. And I think that it could be partly process uh, from what we talk about, aiming for the wrong areas. Uh, it, it could be program adversity. Certainly that's playing a part. Um, and ultimately, though, it all comes down to you're not closing the deal and getting kids to buy your pitch, whether that's your fault or not. 
Uh, it just they have not been ready to commit to what Mullen is selling yet. And so we have to wait and see uh, if he's able to overcome that adversity. And later on, we might have some some more light over whether it's his fault. But we'll see. That's the Cal Naughton Jr. of, uh, <laughs> of recruiting, right? You want to be rich boss, baby. First, you last, man. <laughs> what was the question, Bill? I'll, I'll, I'll Just why they're not getting more commitments right now. What do you think, Will? I mean, I, I think <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I was hoping Bill could shed some light on that <laughs> this evening. But, uh, you know, it really just seems like they're not – you know, the, the things – the California stuff – Bothers me from an approach standpoint, but I'm not really surprised that those guys haven't come. The fact that guys like Pickering stayed in Mississippi has been the stuff that's really sort of surprised and maybe disappointed me because those are guys you have relationships with. Those are guys you've talked to over an extended period of time, and all you're really asking them to do is move with you to what you hope is a superior program. And saying, "Hey, I'm giving you an opportunity to come someplace and help build something here, where yeah, you're you're more than an hour away from home, but at the same time, you know me, you know my system, you know you fit, you know you know all these guys I brought along, and then to not be able to close those guys has been disappointing. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think you got to look at that and, and really take a look in the mirror and see whether the guys you've got on staff are the appropriate guys to close those sorts of relationships into commitments. Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, I don't know why they can't close, but closing seems to be the issue." Because we've heard these guys leave their trips and and either a silent commitment to Florida or really close to committing to Florida or naming Florida their leader. And then when it's all said and done and they make their announcements, Florida's not the pick. So that that seems to be the, the, the prevailing issue right now is what do they have? And we don't have the answer to this, but what do they have to do to be able to seal the deal and close it? Yeah, I mean – and we've had a couple of people ask that at Bajan style that his name's juice, I guess, J U S he asked kind of the same thing. What's the biggest contributing factor. And I mean, some people say relationships and at the end of the day, it's just for whatever reason, whatever comfort level that these recruits need and whatever level of convincing they need, it's just not happening yet. They are getting silent commits. Um, I was told when Billingsley committed to Florida and I know some other ones, I have a couple of silence right now, but I mean, silence are, are worthless. They are absolutely worthless. I mean, they tell coaches all the time on these trips, yeah, I'm coming, coach. You know, we're going to go hang out at the club. You know, I mean, but if they're not willing to go public, which still is not binding, it just doesn't mean a whole lot. Bill, welcome back for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, closing thoughts here, though. Yeah. Closing thoughts. I'm still behind Mullen. I still think he's the right guy for the job. Um, Recruiting has to pick up. If he's going to win, he's probably going to win fast. But I will hope for him to win later if that's what it comes to. But if he's going to win fast, he's probably going to need a better recruiting class than seems to be materializing right now. And I mean, I'd I'd echo those thoughts that this is not meant to be a knock on Mullen when we're looking at this stuff. It's meant to be a a reevaluation of our expectations based on what we saw coming saw coming in. And you saw him bring in that transition class, and you said, okay, you know, there were a couple of guys he didn't close on in the last day, but it's still, you know, as Bill pointed out, historically very very good. And then you look at this and go, okay, what, what's going on here? So, so you know, what again. All of us are fully behind Mullen. Nobody's calling for a firing. Nobody, but I do think we are saying, "Hey, it might be uh, it might be time for a look at what the approach is and maybe some adjustments moving forward." If this doesn't change, yeah. Oh, Bill got me. Bill got me on that one. I have to keep that. Uh, keep that in. 
in between. There's things happening behind the scenes here, folks. Things happen behind the scenes. <laughs> uh, guys, SEC Media Days have headed to the Mars, so kind of kind of be cool to check out that for the first time. Any. Look, we're not going to get a whole lot of answers uh, from these questions and stuff that are going to be thrown at these coaches. You know, Mullen's not going to name a starting quarterback, uh, all that kind of jazz. But anything you really look forward to, to hearing or seeing uh, from those uh, Florida when Florida hits the podium on Tuesday? I don't care what they say. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do because I'll be there, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try to ask some questions to get some get some stuff out of it. But uh, you know, this is this is a dog and pony show at its best. Right. Hey, man, I just hope they talk some trash. That they that they, uh, that they build up some of the stuff, make it interesting, give us something fun to talk about, and uh, whether it's Georgia, Tennessee, Florida State, I don't really care who they talk trash about, but somebody needs to say something that uh, <laughs> that juices up one of the rivalries this year. I need to get a message to Mullen to call the Tennessee fans wildlings. wall. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Uh, well, hey, I just I want to congratulate you, Dave, on becoming a a member of the media now. Who's who? You know, Gators Breakdown it now has an official representative at the SEC Media Days, and and don't let it change you, man. Yeah, no, it's not. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need to do something nefarious, and then say Gators Breakdown sends its regards. <laughs> You need to be known as that guy in Gator Media, man. Do not drink from that wine cup. That's right. <laughs> We're kicking out. Yeah. I yeah. brought out the Yoda tonight, by the way, but he's here. <laughs> well, at least you found that box, Bill. That, that's the important one. He goes, hey, I've had this old Yoda since I was a kid, man. It's my little puppet. <laughs> he's been in every house I've ever owned. <laughs> nice. I don't know... Whether that's cute or sad, I'm not quite sure. Don't you judge me? <laughs> hey, you're you're the one who watches all these new Star Wars movies and then complains about them. So, you know, clearly you've just gotten more and more negative as you've gotten older. Have you? Well, still I don't think we have to worry about it because I think there's going to be no more Star Wars movies, right? <laughs> have you still not seen Solo? No, I saw it. Was all right. Okay. I, thought, I mean, I thought it was kind of cool. You yeah, know, but I like it. Yeah. All right. I'm just still salty about the last Jedi. That's the problem. <laughs> Did you send that petition that was going around? <laughs> no, I, I it's not a petition. I just I know you're sat not here and stewed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bill, thanks for coming on again. Hey man, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I really, really do, and it's really been good to have to be are back on with you guys. Are you going back in Twitter silence after this? Yeah, I probably will, man. I'll probably I'll probably tweet for the next episode to throw out some of these facts and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I don't know, man. I, I don't know what I don't know what my future holds in, in gator coverage. I you know, I've just got other stuff going on right now, the irons in the fire that I want to focus on. But I think if nothing else, I'll still come back around with you guys every once in a while. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, my goal, I mean, I would love to have you on more, but if I once a month, maybe. <laughs> I I'll see what I could do. <laughs> Put him down on the air, Dave. Put him down on the air. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny at this time. <laughs> no, man, it's great to have you back, and uh, good Thanks, to know Will. I'm not going completely insane. No, you're not. <laughs> but I know some who are. <laughs> All right, that's Bill Sykes. You can find Bill on Twitter at Real B Sykes. He'll be on there for a couple more days. You know, after this episode, uh, you can give him your feedback on that. Uh, but I do check my uh, messages. Yeah, 
That's true. Yeah, if you're friends with him, you can DM, DM him and all that stuff. Will, I know you uh, recently wrote an article. Uh, we'll hit that after we kind of review SEC Media Days uh, on Wednesday. Uh, it's like I said, I'll be there Tuesday, driving back from Atlanta on Tuesday. Probably won't be in until 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so we'll do the next Gators Breakdown episode Wednesday night where, we'll, we'll, where we will review SEC Media Days and talk, Will, your latest article. Sounds good, man. No commitment. You don't want to do it at 3 a.m. like we did after Mullen was hired? <laughs> that was a fun show. <laughs> I don't know. I might be hyped up. I don't know. No, man. I'm looking forward to it. I'll be sleeping by then. So uh, we'll, no. we'll talk about it Wednesday. It'll be interesting. Hopefully they say something interesting so we have something to debate. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got a couple questions. I hope I can get get out of there and uh, get, some, get some talking points there. So hopefully uh, we can get all that done. You can find Will on Twitter at WillMilesSEC. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown. Breakdown.